Welcome to the Sustainability and You podcast, a series of interviews focusing on facts shared by passionate advocates who are part of the movement towards net zero. I'm Josephine Bush, and I'm the founder of the Sustainability and You platform. And I'm Tilly Wickens, the leader of our Young Ambassadors Council. In this podcast series, our aim is to raise awareness, encourage collaboration, and join the dots between disciplines that will influence policy and decision-making as we move to net zero. We are aiming to bridge the gap between silos and generations, strengthening the lines of communication with a small, influential community of people who care and are passionate about how we create change. Today's guest is the Right Honourable, the Lord Mayor of the City of London, William Russell. William Russell is the 692nd Lord Mayor of the City of London, acting as a global ambassador for the city, leading business delegations overseas to key international markets on behalf of the UK's financial and professional services industry. He has spearheaded the City of London's Climate Action Strategy, Covering the period 2020 to 2027, it sets out some clear, bold and definable actions to move the city to net zero by 2040. The Lord Mayor recently took part in the Gresham College lecture alongside Mark Carney, Liv Garfield, CEO of Seven Trent and Rianne Marie Thomas of the Green Finance Institute with the theme Building Back Better the city's role in a green-led economic recovery. Tilly and I are particularly interested in the Lord Mayor's views on the role of the city in leading the way on the path to net zero, not just as a beacon of what cities can do, but also as the centre of gravity globally for financial leadership. Welcome to the Sustainability in You podcast I'd like to extend a very warm welcome to the Right Honourable, the Lord Mayor of the City of London, William Russell. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We're also joined by the Sustainability and You Young Ambassador, Tilly Wickens. Hello. Lord Mayor, I'd like to jump right in, if I may, with a question that takes us to the heart of the role and influence of the city in leading on the innovation of finance solutions that get us to net zero. As you've already said, we need to green finance. What does the city need to do specifically to accelerate us on this path? Thank you again, Family. So I think what we've got to do is it's all down to leadership. And um, finance, as I've said, uh, is the key to basically a lot of uh, what we've got to achieve around climate change. And whether it's greening finance finance or financing green, that is one of the, the, the key, the key uh, things that we need to achieve. So we held the Green Horizon Summit back in November, where we had over 90 different countries. We had uh, over 300,000 people taking part at some point, not all at once. I don't know. I think the technology might have collapsed if that had happened. But, you know, there's a, there was a huge amount of momentum from that. Uh, and in, in a way, I will tell you now, we've, we've kept uh, very much the Green Horizon GHS brand and I think you'll see this coming forward as we go towards COP26 uh, and, and, and beyond, because, of course, I keep reminding everyone COP26 is just the start of our presidency. Uh, and we've got a whole year after that to keep the momentum. 
what leaders have to do is is lead simply and the financial sector is a big sector for the uk as you know 10% of all the tax take uh, it's one of our greatest assets and i sense that's happening actually i was on a literally a call yesterday uh, with alison rose uh, ceo of natwest she is leading and she's surrounded uh, with many other people who are leading as well in the sector and um, the key thing is to make sure we don't go off in different directions and we come together and everyone knows what's going on. And in a way, one of the strengths of the mayoralty of being Lord Mayor is um, that soft convening power. It's the convening power where you can bring people together. And that's what we're trying to do. And uh, that's what I call my green team, is trying to make sure everyone knows what's going on and we can just put it all together. And we're very fortunate, of course, with the leadership that Mark Carney showed before and is showing again. Absolutely. There's such power in collaboration we all know that the power of the many is 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 hugely persuasive. How do we do more of that? As you say, you're in a hugely convening position. So are you able to give some examples of what that could look like? I mean, what I'm doing running into COP is, is a whole lot of green teas. Mm-hmm. And it's I'm co-hosting them. In fact, the first one is tomorrow. Um, I'm co-hosting them with uh, with Mark Connie, and we're doing it by sector in finance. And we're bringing in, you know, some 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 of the the big leaders uh, because it has to come from the top. Uh, and if the top say it's like it, it, top say right, we are going to do this, and this is what will it, it will get done. And so that is an example of what we can do. I, mean, I think we're having eight and different sectors, whether it's asset management, uh, insurance, uh, are just two examples of where we're bringing people together and trying to get them to understand we need a collaborative, coordinated approach. And I'm sure we'll come on to the question about data and all the different uh, alliances going on out there. I think I heard yesterday it was about over 100 different, uh, I mean, it's 140 or something ridiculous. So how do you bring that together? It's rather like I use the analogy when in the charity sector, I always think there are far too many charities. And if, if they came together and collaborated or even just came together under one wing, it would make things a lot easier. And funny enough, uh, Prostate Cancer UK, that's exactly what uh, we did. And now the big prostate cancer charity is Prostate Cancer UK. And a lot of the smaller charities have, have been rolled up over the years into that. So, um, you know, I, I think that's something we can do. And then we are very fortunate because we have this Green Finance Institute uh, that can also play a crucial role in listening to, to businesses and 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 identifying uh, various ways of being more impactful, also unlocking barriers. And, and Rianne Marie Thomas, we work very closely with her and Sir Roger Gifford, the chairman of that, uh, a past Lord Mayor, and how we can bring everyone together. And you just alluded, actually, to one of the issues that we face in innovating within finance, which is the lack of standardisation. Mm. We are seeing the convergence of various boards that have issued their own frameworks and guidance you know, even where companies are looking um, to make a change and take positive steps forward, sometimes it's very difficult to know how to do that, which framework should I adopt, which standard, you know, what should I do, how should I do it? Not least, we've got the TCFD, uh, Climate Bond Initiative and the wider EU taxonomy. What more do you think the city could do to lead on the adoption of frameworks and positively advocate for those? Because when we've got a critical mass... I mean, I agree. I think it comes back to, 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 to be frank, convening, getting people in the room and saying, look, we need to come up with one standard. 
So I'm a fan of TCFD. I think it's the one we're running with. It seems to be working. Uh, as you know, the Chancellor has said 2025, it will be mandatory. Every time I travel virtually, which I'm at, the, at this moment, I'm doing a, a virtual trip to China. Uh, but last week I was in uh, Chile and Brazil and then the week before in North America. But, you know, I always talk about it. And TCFD is is one of the things. And I also talk about the fact that, you know, and Mark uh, Carney has said this, this is the zero emissions COP. That is the thing. I mean, the COP could be other things. And I'd love to be able to say out of COP, we'd have biodiversity by, you know, things should be zero by 2030. And then, of course, we can talk about carbon pricing, which is another issue and uh, and a carbon tax, basically. Mm. But, um, but you know, I think TCFD is a good one. Um, I think the EU taxonomy, I'm sure you've read it because you're really plugged in, but you, uh, Hugh Van Steenis' piece, the op-ed he's just written for Bloomberg, I mean, it's mind-boggling. I mean, if we stay with what uh, they're going to do in the EU, we aren't going to get anywhere. So, uh, in a way, I was a, I always say I was a Remainer, but I'm not a Remainer. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, we now have this this opportunity to influence government at some point and the Bank of England around not because because adopting necessarily what the EU did because I've read Hugh's piece and Hugh's much more informed than I am and incredibly helpful but you know bottom line is it's it's it won't we won't achieve anything I think you know the the whole rules around green bonds and all that is going to be very uh, aren't basically going to work for us so um, look those are things that we need to do and we're moving at pace. Um, but let's get that. See, I think that zero emissions commitment yes. uh, for COP26 is the key. Let's get that. And I think I've heard, and you'll, you'll probably better inform, I think two thirds of the GDP of the world have committed to that 2050 or including China 2060. Yes, that's correct. No, I was just going to say it sort of reminds me of, of one of the things that Mark Carney said, which is if you set the objective and you've got that global objective, the market will convene around the objective and the hierarchy of issues and methodologies as to how you achieve the objective yeah. will start to settle in the right place. And one of those things, of course, is these sort of frameworks, but also the ability to be able to adduce decision useful data. I agree. It's all it is, the data is is absolutely critical. You know, I have as you say, we've we we know the top where we've got to get to. Uh we know that we've got to get there much quicker and you know at the moment, we are definitely headed above two degrees. And, you know, we need to, to avoid that. But I was on a call yesterday with um, Nick Stern and, I mean, a whole group of people who are, you know, know where we've got to get to. And I think everyone, I, I genuinely believe that we want to achieve this. And, you know, one of the best quotes I heard recently was that COVID-19 has become the test run for what we can do around climate change. And I thought that was really good because look what we've achieved. I mean, the vaccination is just extraordinary. So when we need to, and when we know it's that serious, we can move very quickly. And that gives me optimism about how quickly we can move on all this. Sorry, can I just ask off the back of that, the yeah. interesting thing about the pandemic is that it hit us so hard and so quickly that there wasn't really another option. And what I'm interested in with climate change is that there are still unfortunately so many climate deniers and so many people who aren't really on board and it although those who are clued in know how hard it's hitting us and how fast it's coming it's not as immediately obvious as the pandemic and I wonder I think you're right the leadership response was fascinating and it shows what we're capable of but it's whether that will be applied to something that is more 
abstract or perhaps less obvious? So, Tilly, I think that's a very good question. And I just would say, I mean, this, I mean I'm optimistic uh, as a person, but 2008, 2009, we had the financial crisis and climate change was sort of being talked about and then it took a back seat. And Gillian Tett, who you all know, who's the writes uh, at the FT very well and the editor in the North America, she wrote saying COVID-19 is going to do the same for climate change. And she, on, a, on a World Economic Forum meeting I was at a month or two ago, she held her hand up and said, we were all wrong. Journalists are wrong. In fact, it's extraordinary how COVID-19 has accelerated the whole climate agenda. Now, um, I agree with you. They're always going to be deniers. They're vax deniers. They're climate change deniers. However... Even some of the deniers, uh, and some of them are politicians, and you can be cynical, but I think the latest I saw from Friends of the Earth is 85% of the public in the UK recognise climate change and how important it is. So that's a good start. And we know how politicians look at polls, but I'm being cynical. But what I would say is also politicians get it. Boris gets it. The 10-point plan Rishi gets it, government gets it, partly because, coming back to, we seem to be quoting Mark Carney a lot, but partly because Mark has said this is the biggest investment opportunity of a generation. And it genuinely is. So we're going to create, I think, many jobs. There's going to be a huge opportunity to invest. All I can tell you is there is a little bit of a green bubble developing because there's huge amounts of capital to go into all these, these companies or to green bonds. But to be frank, there aren't enough projects. Uh, and so that's the next stage. We've got to play catch up a bit. I mean, we haven't even uh, done our green green bond yet, but you know, Rishi's uh, committed to 15 billion pounds. I think it will be more than 15 billion, but we've now got to work out where he's going to invest that money. And you know, you hear all about greenwashing and all that. But you know, the direction for me is 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 where we're headed. And now we've just got to guide it uh, into the right places. And the challenge is, yeah, I mean, it's just trillions of dollars, as we know. And the challenge between now and 2050 is enormous. But I was on a call yesterday with Dr. Marjun and uh, Sir Roger Gifford, uh, who's chairman of the Green Finance, and Dr. Marjun is, our, is the main China man. And, you know, China, I mean, I've lived in Hong Kong. I know what China, when China decide to do something, yeah. watch this space. They move very quickly. And, of course, the media, which always drives me slightly, man, is the media... Yeah, sometimes I, I just wish, you know, I like to read good news rather than bad news, and they go for the headlines. But actually, the media will pick up and say, oh, well, China, you know, they're still building coal-fired power stations. Well, they were committed ages ago, but the key thing is to look over the next few years how they're going to roll over, yeah. and the ones that they got. So we're getting there, and they're near a peak on that. So, you know, you can see where I'm coming from. And then America, thank goodness have come back in and they've got catch-up to play. I really like the point and the emphasis on opportunity because a lot of the starting points for this are around risk management, aren't they? And making mm. sure that you have proper processes in place to manage your risk. And there is risk, of course, with investing in innovation and new technologies. What role do you think the city government can play in mitigating risk, whether it's through blended finance or other innovative partnerships, public-private partnerships? So I think I think it's got to be public-private, as you say, and government recognise that. So they can mitigate some of the risk and, you know, whether it's, you know, being paid to install, make your installation of your house better. I mean, uh, I mean I'm mean, i much to the dismay, you know, no, well, it's not the dismay of my wife, but I have, I've had geothermal for some time. However, I failed to realise in an older house, you need to change the radiators. 
which I didn't do. And of course, our house has been a lot colder since <laughs> I put geothermal in. Uh, so I just say, well, we, the hot water's there. I can cope with that. But, you know, I could, the putting in new radiators was going to be incredibly expensive. But what I'm saying is that, you know, we all talk about how we've got to change all the gas boilers and, you know, whether it's geothermal or new builds, which works really well. And other So the technology, and then we can talk about hydrogen uh, and what that's going to do. You know, it is down to this tech and innovation, uh, but it's there because everyone can see the end game and actually can see this could be very profitable. We happen to have a really good entrepreneurial spirit in this country. I'm convinced all of it's driven by EIS and SEIS because, you know, billions, 1.97 billion went into that that to, to get these startups going. Yet there is risk and, there, and government recognises that, but in some of the bigger projects like you know, the electric, uh, they're making sure we have electric chargers. Government has to come in and private come alongside them. I mean, I've seen some some uh, funds that, you know, where, where you know, there's a very, very good IRR and um, some of those sovereign wealth funds are coming in alongside government. And then we've got the National Infrastructure Bank, <laughs> which we all know is really the same as the Green Investment Bank that we no longer have. But it doesn't matter. We've got it. And I think it's 12 billion, uh, the balance sheet which doesn't sound enough to me, but still, it's a start. And what are the, I mean, we're going to hear more about how that's going to work. So you can see, I mean, yeah, I mean, there's a, God, there is so much to do, but I just generally think the direction's uh, correct. And coming back to my point today, and I agree, COVID-19 was, um, we had to move quickly, but maybe it takes, and I pray it doesn't, but a natural disaster of the consequences of maybe the bushfires or something worse, where someone says, look, we've got to move here because, you know, otherwise uh, certain parts of the world are going to be underwater very quickly. What do you think we could learn from others, what other cities are doing and how they're innovating? Ah, well, of course, I think we're innovating better than any other city. Of course. But I'm completely <laughs> biased. Um, but, you know, on a serious note, we have our climate action strategy plan here in the City of London. And I always like to say to people that back in 1953, we uh, the Clean Air Act came through us and we abolished coal fires in the city ahead of any other city. So in a way, our climate action strategy plan, which means we're going to be zero emissions free by 2040, and that's scope three, and by 2027, scope two. I've shared that plan with many cities around the world. I've said, you must read this. I mean, I'll give you an example. I was on a call just this week. It seems all the calls I've been telling you about would be this one, but it, that is what my life's about at the moment. But it was with um, our friends in India, and they're opening something called Gift City, which you may have heard about, which is this, in Gujarat, this new city they're building. And I told them about the climate action plan, and I'm not sure they'd really register. You're building a new city from scratch. It should be totally green. You should be, what's mm-hmm. your zero emissions target? And they said, thank you, you know, we're taking it away. Uh, and that's the sort of thing that, you know, I think we can do city to city. We need to learn from each other. It's city to city collaborating. And to be frank, city to city is the way I think a lot of us should go because, you know, we're of Brexit as well. It's London to city to city. But also, you know, the whole uh, influence we can have helping with what we're doing down here, whether it's Manchester, Edinburgh. But I think the more we all talk to each other and see and share ideas, the better. 
Absolutely. And and others will look to the City of London to, yeah. to lead. I was very impressed with the inclusion of Scope 3 within the... 2040, yeah. Yeah. So I, th- I think that, that that's great because a lot of organisations are really struggling with how they calculate and monitor yeah. on top of their Scope 3 emissions. So it's great to see that you're being very open and transparent yeah, I mean, we think it will create 800 jobs. It will cost us 65 million pounds. That's what we have at the moment. It may that all may change, but you know, we've made that commitment, and you know, it's going to be a hell of a task to get there. But uh, Tilly, who I'm sure has, could be a common councilman in the city, and maybe one day Lord Mayor, you can drive the process. <laughs> It'd be my pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> um, can I ask you? You talk about city, uh, city to city. Yeah. How have you found the response from rural areas um, and the kind of disparity that that might create socially, um, city to rural? So I think that's another very good question. Well, so you, you, you saw what happened with the coal mine in Cumbria. That was job creating. And I think it, the locals were probably very upset that it got pulled away by government and they're now looking at it. And, you know, I hope that they don't give it permission because I think it does send all the wrong messages. But I think we need to get across to rural that there is job creation in in, in green. And that is the key thing, because a lot of it is about jobs. If, the, if, if rural feel that by doing what they're doing, um, you know, helping on the climate agenda means they're going to lose their job, then we aren't going to take anyone with us. So that is the key thing. But I genuinely believe it will create jobs. It's just a transfer from old to new in a way. And, and, and with these new, idea, new ideas and new businesses starting up, that will be the case. So I'd like to think that we can, what's happening in Cumbria with, with uh, the, the coal mine, you know, that we can still create jobs and do the right thing. So I think it is a challenge. There's no doubt about it. City to city get it. Uh, but I think really they get it. I mean, the stats are there, but we've got to work out how, how, that, uh, how that works. I mean, my, my wife's a farmer. I mean, the number of things she's looking at at trying to 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 make uh, her her land more sustainable uh, and, and and not till it constantly, as a lot of farmers have done. Uh, and you know, there's so much we can learn. And you know, this is there. There, I think the, the technology, as you say, and the innovation is moving very fast. So I, I think we'll get there. But there is this that we haven't even used the word transition. But there is this transition uh, for all of us. Uh, and it's for big business, it's for rural communities, it's for cities, the transition to get to where we want to get to. And it's um, it's going to cost us a lot of money and the government hopefully are there to to help us as well. We, we need strong leadership more yeah. than ever um, during the transition uh, at this time. What, what do you think it means to be an effective leader? Well, I think that one of the most important things about an effective leader is communication and communicating your message uh, strongly, but also consistently. You know, I, uh, you know, I'm in my role for, I'm happy to be in my role for two years, but um, as I said, the last time that happened was 1860, 1861, so it's quite a rarity. And uh, it, But it's also a privilege because as Lord Mayor, uh, I always say it's easier once you've been around the boy once, and I've been around the boy once, I'm, I'm, I'm now the second year is easier. So you know how it all works and so in a way, you could probably achieve more. I mean, I say to people, I have reached more people uh, around the world because of COVID-19. So you've got to take advantage of that. So I think you've got to communicate the message from the perspective of finance. The message is loud and clear. We All finance has got to be green. That is where we've got to get to. 
And as I said in my Gresham lecture, go green or go home. I mean, the message is loud and clear. You're either on board or you're not. And to be frank, when it comes to COP26, those who aren't committing necessary to zero emissions uh, and businesses as well as potentially countries, I think it's going to people are going to know. Uh, and for corporates, it's a big event, particularly if you're publicly you're listed, because the shareholder base will uh, will um, will give you a, a very hard time about it. But it doesn't um, it doesn't mean that it has to happen immediately. So I'm not pro suddenly stopping all investments in fossil fuel companies. You've got to invest as long as they're showing us that they're making this transition, mm-hmm. uh, and we've got to keep that you know keep the pressure on them. I mean, you know, we don't want the greenwashing that everyone's talking about. And I think with science-based targets and the Transition Pathway Initiative, we're starting to have some of these frameworks build proper accountability and responsibility for leadership through this change. And it's very interesting. You can see how the pressure is building. And I think the the, the CEOs recognise that they have to show leadership. Uh, in this area. As I said, there is so much capital going into it. It's an opportunity. And if you get it right, you'll benefit from that capital. And I know you feel as passionately as I do about helping young leaders like Tilly come through to fully effective, impactful leaders of tomorrow. How do you think that we give people like Tilly a voice? They're inheriting our decisions. They're inheriting the world we create. Well, we need to include them. And coming back to something which um, we talked about earlier before the, the recording, you know, I think uh, young, the younger generation needs to be included in so many more things that we're doing. And as uh, a deputy chair of Place to Be and a past chair of Prostate Cancer UK, uh, boards of charities need to embrace the younger generation. Look, the world's changed. Um, so every meeting should be a should be a hybrid meeting, probably. So those who can't necessarily uh, and the timings of the meeting, you can do a board meetings at you know six o'clock in the evening, whatever suits you know, uh, uh, rather than you know during the middle of the day. And so I think we need to change, and I think we will we will do that. You know, I, I just look at the power of of lots of things that have happened during COVID nineteen, whether it's you know the George Floyd event, the Sarah Everard event. You know, uh, th- you know, these are huge wake-up calls for all of us uh, of how we need to address all generations, but particularly uh, inclusivity and diversity. Um, I have a 19-year-old daughter who's at Durham, and you know uh, what happened. And Sarah Everard was at Durham, so it resonated. But it was, you know, we we need to we need to do we need to adapt. And so, you know, I'm I'm involved with something which I mentioned to Tilly called 2040. And that is trying to address that. You're the leaders of the future are trying to address that issue. And I think, uh, you know, more more companies, more charities, more business across the board, we need to look at that. Any ideas from Tilly? Putting me on the spot there. Sorry. <laughs> uh, no, I think it's really interesting to hear you speak so authentically about it, actually, because I think it's something that consistently creates a difficulty because... It's about having a voice, but it's also about having an informed voice. And I can see why there is that break in sort of or sort of the generational gap, because ultimately you want someone who is going to be able to speak up, but also very much add value and not just speak up for the sake of speaking up. And I think certainly I've noticed in the past few years and actually particularly surrounding the sustainability agenda 
is a real negative connotation to um, the younger voice because of the activism that it invokes. And I think that can be seen quite negatively, particularly around the Extinction Rebellion protests. What's really important is to involve the younger generation in a way that feels inclusive, but it is well structured. And yeah, it's it's really interesting because you... uh, you're so passionate about it that it feels very authentic and I think it's absolutely essential uh, but I can see how it's difficult to carry that out. No I think that's right I mean I've always thought in in so many things in life it's about early intervention Uh, and whether it's mental health you know we've learned so much about mental health and early intervention as far as you know, ages five to six is when some of these issues happen. And by the way, now mental health has become a massive issue for the elder generation. You know, um, suddenly we're talking about some of the issues we've had in our life, but also in COVID-19. And that is going to become a broader item as well, the well-being and mental health of your employees. So it's amazing where we've moved to. But, you know, it's also about early intervention with the younger generation. Don't wait until they're in their 40s and 50s and, you know, uh, and suddenly we take an interest and embrace them now. And Greta Thunberg has done a huge amount of good on that front. And look what she's achieved, uh, despite um, a past president's view of her. <laughs> Lord Mayor, thank you for your insights today. What an absolute pleasure. Uh, really enjoyed our, our discourse and thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much for having me.